the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage. From National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between, CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. It's late Saturday night, 12.21 a.m. on the East Coast. We haven't quite hit our uh, our daylight savings time buffer quite yet. It's uh, it's still Saturday night where my friends are. That's Barton Simmons. That's Tom Fernelli. We've got a lot to get to today. Uh, we've got... The action in Jacksonville to break down Georgia's big win over Florida, an absolute thriller in the Liberty Bowl in Memphis. And, uh, and, and you know, even though, gentlemen, first time since 1996 that number one, number two, and number three from the AP poll all off in the same week. In total, four of the five, top five teams were all off. And the one that did play was Clemson. So let's just say that they were off as well. Nine of the top 25 teams were out. And yet I still am sitting here feeling a little worn out. And I don't know if that's just the the Memphis SMU track meet that we just put to bed or, you know, Oregon just sort of piling it on USC. But I it, w- it was a lighter slate, and I felt like I still got a, a full helping. I'm happy for it. Well, I'm still hopped up on leftover Halloween candy. Mm, so Performance enhancers. You, you had a, so much snow in Chicago that nobody came to get your candy, and you're so disappointed, I'm sure, to have these oh, performance enhancers for Saturday night. It's heartbreaking just to have so much candy left around the house just to be eaten. I mean, you can't throw it out. That would be a waste. Chip, I, I think this is just your uh, close attention that you're paying to that Memphis SMU game that's talking because – this felt like a much more like at the, the, the for the morning games, the eleven a.m. Central games. I was like, you know, looking at my watch, like when <laughs> when is the next one going? Yes. Like when's the next round going to start? I mean, there was like one game that was compelling at all in that early session. There, there were some good games in the, in the in the midday slate, and then that USC Oregon game went south quick uh, after halftime. So maybe we had a half of interesting fall. So then, you know, boiled down to the one Memphis SMU game at night. So I would say, personally, I feel like this was a uh, very manageable Saturday by comparison. We do have the fighting Tommy Trans, the San Jose State Spartans, currently leading 24-17 to at halftime against Boise State as we sit here and record on Saturday night. As things develop, uh, we will keep you abreast and you'll find out tomorrow morning at the same time that you could check a score. Uh, do y'all want to start with Georgia? Let's do yeah. it. Okay. That works. So the was there anything from Georgia that makes you believe that they are uh, 
by any chance above what you might have imagined coming into the year because there is a, a very comfortable storyline that we can take as we look at the Bulldogs moving forward after the win, which is that in this victory over Florida, coming back from two straight uh, weeks where there's a lot of doubt, a lot of sort of hand-wringing about the offense and the, the passing attack, that they came into this game and, and the defense was just, you know, solid uh jake Fromm was able to make enough throws to be able to 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 keep the bulldogs ahead and keep the gators at arm's length throughout the game so you could say hey look you know what georgia did they kind of lost their way a little bit maybe they were sleepwalking through the first part of the season but after the week off this game is going to be the game that gets their attention they showed up as the playoff contenders that we expected and i guess like like Barton, first of all, was there? Is that where you're falling? And if so, is there anything to suggest that maybe they were even more impressive here than you were expecting? Where I think that going into it, you were, we were all on the same page. Like we believe that Georgia is the better team. We just know we hadn't seen it yet. Do you feel as we're sitting here after the win against Florida that you've seen what you would want to see? If, for example, you were holding a, a Georgia SEC championship ticket. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the boa constrictor was back. It it looked, it looked very pythonish. Um, I I thought that Georgia. I mean, and this is like one of the most understated. Like no one really. I mean, I don't want to say no one really talks about it, but the Georgia defense is quite like quietly, incredibly dominant. And maybe it's because they don't really have that that one face. Um, that one superstar name uh, that that everyone in the country knows. Well, they don't Maybe have a Chase Young, and they don't have yeah. like one solid defensive back like a Derek Stingley Jr. that everyone talks about. Yeah, maybe they don't have you know they don't have some sort of like negative seventy-seven yard rushing day or something that Michigan State had or whatever. But I and and I've sort of talked to people that have sort of secondhand talked to coaches that are prepared for them and and it's that you know they say that the offense is is okay but holy cow that defense is tough and when you really look at it i mean that's really what happens here like in this game that's that's kind of what happened i mean i tweeted it at one point uh, i think that georgia went up i want to say 16 to 3 maybe and i tweeted that this just this feels like an insurmountable lead right now with the way this defense is playing and i and i, and I believe that and so I think the defense deserves a lot of credit for how it's held its own. I mean, it certainly played well enough to win the South Carolina game uh, and shut out Kentucky and and uh, and all that. Uh, and and this offense looked more like the offense we expected. I mean, there are lights out on third down. Jake Fromm balled out. Lawrence Kaiser coming back was a storyline that probably as much as it was talked about. Maybe we undersold it. I mean, that dude absolutely unlocks a lot in that Georgia offense. So, sure. I mean, this looks once again like the team that we we thought they were. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a good competitive game, fun football game. But, I mean, Georgia clearly was better. I think the reason Georgia's defense doesn't really stand out or get a lot of attention is because it's not a disruptive defense. It's just a very fundamentally sound, talented, well-coached unit. Because if you, even if you're just looking at today, I mean, Georgia or Florida scored 14 points in the fourth quarter, kind of made this game 
closer than it ever really felt, at least when I was the way I felt watching it. Like I, I never thought Georgia was ever really in trouble. But if you look at what Georgia did today, I mean, it gets off the field on third down. It held Florida two to nine on third down conversions, which is the complete opposite compared to Florida's defense. But also, it only had two sacks and then another tackle for loss. It didn't force any turnovers. It's not the kind of defense that is getting into the backfield and completely creating chaos. They're just like, okay, move down the field in 12 plays against us. We right, right. It's like an Iowa, it's like an Iowa defense. Yeah, and yeah. nobody can. For the most part, I mean, it's, it's really difficult to do, and it works for them. And I think that as far as my feelings about Georgia after this game is – Nothing has changed too much for me in that. I mean, clearly it's a big win. They're they're now, you know, going to win the East barring something incredibly unforeseen, but this was a Georgia game. This was the kind of game that Georgia wins. My concerns about Georgia are what happens when it gets out of its comfort zone. It can win a 24 to 17 game, but if it's got to play a 44 to 41 game, like you might have to play against an Alabama or against an LSU or against a Clemson team if you get to the playoff, can Georgia win that game? I'm not as convinced that that they can do that and this win didn't really change my mind there but again still a huge win there's still a team that is very much in the sec title race and very much in the playoff conversation because of it so jake Fromm had a big game yes and future chicago bear jake Fromm. jake Fromm shook off all the haters Did, did did you guys know and i'm not even being sarcastic here did you guys know that there was this much uh jake Fromm? hate that was that was festering no. uh, around Athens because that certainly was a was a was a talking point after the game I I did not know though I did identify this as being a Jake Fromm game that was my talking point on a lot of CBS Sports HQ hits where I was just saying look Fromm balled out in this game last year is this would be a really good spot for him to turn around whatever narrative we've got with in terms of you know, where he's been and where he is in his trajectory and his career. I mean, we were out here uh, on the podcast debating whether or not he would come back and painting these scenarios about whether he would go to the NFL and and how they finished, how that might play into it. it Jake Fromm needed a good game so that we were spending more time talking about what he was doing good right now rather than what he did good or what he might be doing next year. When, he, when he's able to snap us back into those uh, those kind of like, oh, yes, of course. He, he makes third down back shoulder throws to the physically imposing wide receiver. That's what Jake Fromm, that's what Jake Fromm does. When he's able to give us that kind of game and, and put us back into this season, then I think he can change some narratives. I didn't know that around the Georgia fan base, there was as much like Jake Fromm stinks. And when Kirby Smart's coming out and having comments uh, – Along the lines, you passed it along. Let me pull it up real quick. Uh, Kirby Smart praised Dog Nation for being, quote, all in today, but added, quote, I was proud of the support our fans provided for us, even if they didn't think Jake could throw the ball. That sounds a little concocted to me. That sounds like he read one message board post. Oh, and he's going straw man on it? Yeah, and he he used it as motivation for Jake. Because even when Jamie Erdahl – Interview Jake Fromm after after the game. I mean, in a very Jake Fromm way, which is diplomatic and um, very kind of professional. He he sort of made sort of a comment about um, I don't I don't remember what he said specifically, but it, it was a very clear 
um, uh, subtle statement about proving kind of people wrong, proving them that I still got it kind of deal. And and look, we, we ha- we've had these conversations about what is Jake Fromm, you know, does he come back or for his senior year? Um, and, and I'm sure that even in Georgia, there's been some sort of probably fairly maddening comparisons to, to Justin Fields. But I don't know that anyone was ever like doubting Jake Fromm, were they? I mean, I, I am, I, am, I, am I misremembering this? I mean, maybe – Maybe there's some hyper-local. Georgia fans. I was going to say Georgia yeah. fans and like Georgia message board. Like we do know who we're dealing with here, right? Like it's very possible that there was a, a fringe that was very vocal uh, in terms of what they thought about the quarterback position, right? But even so, like when those fringes exist, I feel like I still get a hint of them on like Twitter from Georgia fans. If I'm mentioning from or if I'm mentioning Georgia and I haven't seen a hint of anything like that as far as, you know, as far as Fromm's concerned. I've seen plenty of stuff about the play calling and the offense. So, I, have, so I you're, haven't seen any Georgia fans complaining about Fromm. So y'all are, yeah, I'm not saying that you are accusing or alleging, but we are at least approaching some Jim McElwain death threats levels of fake stories out here. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know I'm not I ready to go level. there. This is, I, this is more on like the level of motivational <laughs> tactics. Yeah, this yeah. is like the Lou Holtz telling Notre Dame that Holy Cross is, you know, nobody thinks we can beat these guys. <laughs> In the in the fabricated storylines universe, this is still pretty low. This is forgivable. I'm not gonna. Yeah, I don't. I'm not gonna run to the AD and say uh, Kirby Smart is. This is this is slander about our fan base. This is, yeah, this is like Alabama winning a national title, and like and during the post game interview, somebody's like, nobody believed in us. I think it's that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm I'm with. I I never doubted Jake Fromm. I just thought that this was an important moment. After, I mean, the South Carolina game was the worst game that he's played as a Georgia starter, probably. And, uh, and you know, the last game was a slop fest. It's just it's a, a good little spot for him to have a good Jake Fromm game. Yeah, I mean, we even said on the mailbag earlier this week that we thought the problem was that, you know, maybe Georgia needed to loosen the reins on him more than it was anything right. about Fromm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That, that's been, that, that has been a popular talking point huh. that – this Georgia offense needs to needs to throw it forty times. Loosen up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, uh, but hey, I'm glad Jake Fromm got that monkey off his back. <laughs> Any uh, anything else from Georgia Florida stand out? I guess for Florida, what we I sit back and you know they 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 played this game. Uh, they made a bunch of mistakes early. Uh, I'm trying to think about like look at my notes bunch of mistakes early kind of set themselves back uh, like you mentioned Tom a flurry of scoring sort of makes it seem a little bit closer than expected I don't I don't I don't really feel like my my power rating or my compass on Florida has really adjusted there's there's also that fourth down really early in the game when Florida went for it that just kind of struck you as one of those moments that sometimes occasionally pop up where Dan Mullen thinks he's the smartest guy in the world and wants to prove it to you <laughs> yeah he outthinks I, himself. I totally agree. I, I feel like that was – look, who knows what would have happened. They, they may have gotten that and then thrown a pick the next play. But that feels like – you know, I agree. Go with the one on fourth down. That was the right call. Mm-hmm. And But to go to go empty on fourth and – I mean, it was, it, it was less than a yard, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, this is like fourth and two-thirds of a yard. 
and just I, I felt like that was a that was a little bit of a white flag, not a white flag, but an indicator of of where they thought they could do the rest of the way against that Georgia front seven. And I thought it, and I just thought the play call limited their options there, and and and, and sort of look where they you're not going to run with Kyle Trask out of the gun. So uh, I thought that had they gotten that fourth down, had they gone down and punched one in somehow, that that could have changed the tone of the rest of the game. Um, that's a big, obviously a big if, but. Uh, that that felt really big to me. USC jumped out to a 10-0 lead at home. Keaton Slovis was slinging it. The vibes were there. USC holding that lead. And then Oregon outscored the Trojans 56-14 to the rest of the way. And it, it truly was just one of those um, just overwhelming avalanches where a great response touchdown drive in the second quarter by Oregon's offense makes it 10 seven. Then is the, is it, does it go pick six and then kickoff return or kickoff return, then pick six a very, very quickly. This thing was out of hand. It was a 28 point second quarter and all and Oregon never looked back. So the ducks are now eight and one overall that loan loss. As we remember coming earlier this season to Auburn neutral site game in Dallas and uh, they've got one real tricky spot left. Uh, well, excuse me, two, because hello, Beavs, right, guys? Yeah, Beavers live. Beavers live. Oregon State getting it done uh, on the road to Arizona earlier today. Oregon's Oregon's got it all laid out in front of them for them to have a really, really strong to the close to the month of November. So as we're, as we're looking at this game, we deemed it Mario-proof. Uh, we did have it identified as the you get it pulled up and you make sure that the speakers aren't turned on in the actual house so that they don't okay here we go i don't think people would have been happy if that had been played through the wrong speakers (laughs) but it's like I was like, what in the world is he talking about? <laughs> Lock Unity caches uh, with Oregon uh, at four and a half. Never a doubt. Tom, you were live blogging this game. This was your uh, your evening duties on CBSSports.com. You were able to pre-write a lot of it, so that was nice. Yeah. You know, we were able to, to, to wrap up our writing and, and get on the podcast. But what were some of the things that stood out the most to you uh, about the game? Uh, I mean... Oregon is so much better than USC, but this this was a sloppy game. I mean, Oregon didn't have the turnovers. Like, USC turned the ball over four times. Oregon only had the one, although it was a horrible interception from her. But I don't know if it was just the wide receiver ran the wrong route or if he just saw the wrong thing. But he pretty much threw a pass directly to the USC defensive back and set the Trojans up with the first and goal. But, but USC had the turnover. Slovis had the pick six, which was horrible. He had a horrible fumble in the red zone. But also, there were so many penalties in this game. Like, Oregon had 12 penalties for 157 yards. That's You're not going to win a lot of games like that. USC had eight penalties for 92 yards. It's just I think that overall, this was a case where we've seen and what we're probably going to continue to see with USC because they're so banged up where they came out hot they came out playing well, but then just kind of got worn down. And once Oregon started, you know, rolling downhill, there really wasn't a whole lot that the Trojans could do to stop it. 
Justin Herbert was 21 to 26, only 225 yards. So it's not like he was having, you know, dropping bombs everywhere, but he did have the three touchdowns. Juwan Johnson caught all three. He had seven catches for 106 yards. And it was just, you know, it was an impressive win for Oregon. I don't think I learned all that much from it, though, other than Oregon's the best team in the North. Utah's the best team in the South. The Pac-12 title game is more than likely going to be Oregon versus Utah, but I still think that Oregon is the Pac-12's best playoff hope because Utah's only got one loss like the Ducks do, but that loss was to the USC team that Oregon just beat by 32 and is now 5-4, and four, so that's not going to do a whole lot of good for Utah's resume going forward. But it's just, I didn't, like I said, I didn't really learn all that much other than Oregon is better than USC, but we all knew that going into the game. Well, you learned that this is, in fact, Clay Helton's last year at USC. Oh, yeah. But right? we knew that, though. I, I mean, mean, I guess there, we, we suspected that. And I guess we, you know, there, had he finished, let's see, what what is USC, uh, yeah, so he could have finished. He could have finished nine and three. Could have finished nine and three, winning out with a win over a top ten Oregon along the way, and then he's you know he's got a tough, you know, tough call to make, tougher at least. Uh, but to lose, to lose like that, it's it's pretty clear this is this is the end. And I don't know whether to look. You could probably have a, a, a debate about this, and there's probably strong points on both sides. But I don't know how much he, blame he should get for the incredible rash of injuries they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're playing with uh, a true freshman at running back, and that's it. They've got all kinds of defenders have been injured. Um Offensive line getting injured. Uh, the, obviously, they're on their backup quarterback. They were on their third-string quarterback at one point. Like The injuries have been ridiculous. I would argue that that's – A, that's not an excuse at USC to be 5-4. and four, But B, that it feels like that could very well be part of this strength and conditioning issue that's been plaguing the program for years under Clay Helton. And maybe it should still be a negative mark in, in that column. Um, but bottom line, like there, there's just, there is no excuse for USC and that blue blood program losing anybody by 32 points. Hmm. All right. So no positives from, uh, from the Oregon side, Oregon's just a better team. Check Mark. Uh, I mean, the positive is that the hit Herbert took to his right leg wasn't anything serious. Like it looked like it could have been bad when it first happened, but he was back in a few plays later. And on the very first play back in, he just threw an absolute bullet for touchdown. No, there, there are positives. Herbert played well. Oregon played well, very sloppy, kind of sloppy play that you probably aren't going to get away with against a better team than this USC team. But I mean, they won by 32, so it's not like you can say there's no positives. They they beat USC's butt on national television in primetime when there really weren't any other big major games going on. So as far as their playoff case is concerned, this is big because even though USC is now 5-4, and four, it's still USC, so that's going to mean something. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big win for them, but it's also an expected win, and they just need to keep winning. It's really as simple as it gets. Look, I, I think that this is – huge for Oregon that that program is 
at a point right now where it can play sloppy, play mm-hmm. not that good, and win by 32 points over USC. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's, I mean, they came they to, the they perfect, came, that that's better than if they just played the perfect game and won by 32. Well, like, they they, played, uh, they came back from what a double digit deficit in Husky Stadium too. Yeah, it's yeah. It, that's this is a this is a mentally tough team. Yeah, got to. I mean, Mario Cristobal does a lot of things that just make me want to scream. It's <laughs> a lot of weird decisions. Like even Joel Klatt was giving him some crap at the end of the first half when he wasn't using his timeouts. But you cannot, for a minute, say that his team isn't mentally tough and prepared because they could have folded at Washington. They didn't. When they when Herbert threw that horrible interception that put him, you know, gave USC a first and goal after the Trojans had already taken a seven nothing lead. That defense stood tall, held him to a field goal, and and the Oregon afterwards responded by marching right down the field and scoring to make it ten to seven, kind of just eliminating any momentum that USC had had up until that point. This is a mentally strong team. And that's a very good sign for them going forward. Speaking of, physical, oh, go ahead. They're tough. I mean, just they're they're tough and strong and physical and like that's, I, I don't know. It just feels good for the Pac-12 to have someone like that. And I think Oregon's is repping that brand, that that blue collar physical brand pretty well. Well, you know, I mean, the Pac-12s had had that because the most Utah team that Utah could ever Utah found <laughs> itself. Look at feeling like it was just another day against Washington. Like Chris Peterson's got our number. Like our offense is never going to be able to move against Washington. And they hung in there and uh, Jacob Eason and that Washington offense made a couple mistakes and Utah and Tyler Huntley took advantage and Utah ends up battling back, rallying to a 33-28 win in Husky Stadium. So the... On, to talk about the Pac-12 brand, I mean, you know, is there anything better than not only having Oregon be able to show this toughness and be able to show this dominance, but also to have a counterpart in the Pac-12 South as Utah, which got a bonus with USC taking a loss, but as Utah continues to march towards trying to capture another Pac-12 South title, trying to meet Oregon in that Pac-12 championship game, I I thought that in this performance from the Utes where it looked like it could have gone one way, similar to Oregon, looks like in in another season it might have been a, a spot where they're never able to get it started. The fact that they were able to overcome that hump and uh, come back and hold on for that win, that kind of felt uh, affirming. I think it was it was a day of affirmation for the, the leaders in the Pac-12, Oregon and Utah right now. Yeah, it's a two-team conference. <laughs> But Utah's good. Like I, I Utah, oh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. No, Utah's a top ten team, and I don't think that we're. And I don't want to be dismissive of that, especially as we're staring down the potential of having potentially, you know, two top ten teams playing for the Pac-12 championship game. The Pac-12 might be the only conference other than the SEC that could have two top ten teams playing in its conference championship game. Yeah, well, when I say it's a two-team conference, I mean in the sense that it has two more teams this year than it's had a couple of the last years mm. as far as serious teams to be taken, you know, f- considered for contending teams. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I, and um, I, I think Utah is – yeah, I mean, I, I think you got – if you get 11-1 and one versus 11-1 and one in the Pac-12 championship and – there's maybe only two undefeated teams 
Um, like I feel like you're. It's getting to the point now where how do you how do you not take a Pac-12 champ that goes 12 and one and beats an 11 and one in in the college ball playoffs over a a second team from one conference? Like that. That's the point I'm at now. Whereas before. Pac-12 hadn't quite earned my respect enough to get in over a second team out of the SEC or a second team out of the, uh, the Big Ten. They're, they're, they're inching closer to being able to, to just get the benefit of the doubt over a second team out of a conference. And surprisingly, Utah looks like a much better team when both Tyler Huntley and Zach Moss are healthy. Who could have seen that coming? <laughs> that game was basically exactly how we expected it, it would be. Yeah. Utah, Utah ran the football. They got some big plays on offense. Jacob Eason ran backwards, bad backpedaled <laughs> just enough to get in trouble a couple times, and that's the ball game. A little I, higher I, scoring than I anticipated, though. Yeah, I, I really hope that Jacob Eason comes back next year. I hope he doesn't go to the NFL because he is like there are. There's no quarterback in the country that is can be at times so fun to watch and throw such a pretty ball and at and and equally maddening and i feel like if he could just like iron out some of this the way he handles pressure and and just get a little bit of a cleaner resume next year like to me he's a second round pick this year and i, I he has a he has no doubt first round arm talent and so if he just gets another year with these receivers um, another year to 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 get a little more comfortable under pressure. It feels like he could be a first round draft pick. So I'm kind of uh, I sort of doubt he comes back, but I kind of I, I hope he does for for Washington's sake and just for our sake. I think he'd be a fun guy to watch throw for two years. Um, how much? Where was Memphis and SMU in y'all's uh, television viewing for the evening slate? It was a lock, so it was secondary screen for me during when I had to live blog USC Oregon. A lock at five and a half, so it was a winner. That's right. Because right. things got real Stop sweaty. <laughs> what about you, Barton? Yeah, I mean, it became it was secondary, became primary later in the night. So I, I saw I saw some of the late fireworks. I think that my. It, it, in a game where Memphis's offense had really relied on Kenneth Gainwell and SMU had decided that it was just going to try to bring heat on Brady White, I do not I do not find SMU's pass defense to be among the best in the country, uh, certainly. But at the same time, I th- I felt like I was walking away from that game um, with with a little bit of a. a a, a tip of the cap to Brady White for delivering some absolute dimes under pressure. They SMU just wanted to play that game. They're like, all right, we're just going to leave our defenders uh, in one-on-one coverage. And Brady White just got in there, made a bunch of key third and fourth down conversions as at, at different points when this game was up in the air. And when you've got Kenneth Gainwell a little bit limited and you're still able to generate that offense, I mean, I think Memphis only punted once the entire game, and a lot of that was good field position, and it felt like if you were grading it play by play, you would be a little bit more down on Memphis because they had so many opportunities that ended in field goals early. But in the in those clutch moments at the end of the first half and especially late in the game, I just I did not think 
as highly I did not think that highly of Brady White going into the game and I thought that he was a difference maker so that feels like a really positive sign for Memphis a team that now suddenly jumps into first place in that division race uh, jumps ahead of SMU probably in the college football playoff rankings and thus the race for the New Year's Six and uh, on the same night where Cincinnati gets taken all the way down to a 46-43 need to walk off field goal to get out of Greenville with the win against ECU it's uh it's a it's a thing for Memphis that maybe after two straight years of getting to the AAC title game and losing, maybe this is the year that they're able to break through and contend for that cotton bowl. Well, first of all, Memphis punted twice. Twice. So. Okay. Aren't you, aren't you feeling foolish? Well, well, they were both in the fourth quarter then. I was pre writing. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I was with you on Brady White, but I mean, I where you are tonight is kind of where I got a couple weeks ago because, like, I was very much skeptical about Brady White. There was a lot of stuff when I saw him early in the year. I was just kind of like, oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> this this could be problematic. But he, he has earned my trust more and more with each week. And again, like you said, tonight was definitely one of those nights where you kind of like, okay, cool. They're going to be fine with this dude. This offense is just a well-oiled machine. Mike Norville offenses are well-oiled machines. His running backs are always averaging like 10 yards a carry and it's just I think that now I mean we had said in the picks the reason I took Memphis was because you know I thought it was a better team than SMU to begin with and SMU played very well SMU only lost by six although you know some of that was cosmetic at the end but 54-48 this is kind of what you thought this game was going to be and it was a fun game, and I think that, yeah, for the group of five, it's definitely a huge game because now that Memphis-Cincinnati showdown is going to be awesome. That's going to be the next, you know, appointment viewing for the American Athletic Conference. But, you know, it's these are two very fun teams. I don't know, and I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but, like, you, when you were talking about their defenses, like SMU's pass defense, I don't feel like they're two very good teams. They're just fun teams. Yeah, I thought Memphis had a pretty good defense early in the year, and that that's that theory has faded, diminished rapidly. But I'm with you guys. I mean, Brady White, he's almost he's he's starting to morph into the Memphis's Kellen Moore or something. Just nothing impressive about his physical traits, but he's so comfortable in that offense that he knows where to go with the ball at all times. That you're always in pretty good hands there with Memphis. I just want to know where, like. Where does Mem- like how does Memphis turn all these guys into these playmakers? Like, who the hell was Daryl Henderson? Like, who the hell is Kenneth Gainwell? Antonio Gibson? Like, where did this guy come from? Like, I, I, something about these guys who are sort of unheralded under the now. Granted, Daryl Henderson had he rushed for a million yards at uh, I think he was a South Panola kid and kind of academics. Flew under the radar. Probably a lot of these guys might flew under the radar academically. Like Demonte Coxie was committed to LSU at one point. I think academics may have been part of the reason why he ended up at Memphis. So, you know, there there, there are some guys that like we shouldn't be surprised by. But you know, I mean, Antonio Gibson, like that play at the end of the game where Antonio Gibson like bounced off three tacklers and awesome. sprinted it away. For, it's like who? Wait, wait a minute. What like pulled up my program? Like who is this guy? <laughs> and uh, and just but I I mean something about Memphis. I don't I don't know if they've got a a good strength and conditioning program or they a speed speed coach or something. But man, like guys just seem to be fast in that program. Mm. So what what kind of odds do you give Memphis 
to be so Appalachian State loses on Thursday to Georgia Southern. They fall, and I don't know if that is going to be even if they win at South Carolina. It'll be interesting to to see how the college football playoff selection committee might might rank them. I don't expect them to be ranked on Tuesday, but I would assume that right now we're looking at Boise State and then the AAC champ for that group of five spot, right? If yeah, Boise State wins. Yeah, we're sitting here watching uh, Boise State try to get past the San Jose State squad. What's the score? 27-24 um, Spartans in the third. Goodness um, Yeah, you – you got a better you got a better handle on how those bowl pairings land than I I would, but sounds right. Um, coming up on the other side, we will get into who nearly lost everything and who got the final laugh in the Mike Loxley Josh Gaddis beef. Next, the all new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all new Hyundai Santa Fe's features ensure that you can take on any adventure. What kind of features? Well, how about the available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud? Or the standard third row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together? How about available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone? We're always trying to think about those great spring and summer getaways, but with a car like the Hyundai Santa Fe, anywhere can be your next adventure. To learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe, go to HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. So how much fun do y'all think uh, Josh Gaddis had sitting in the meeting rooms Telling Don Brown all the wrinkles to Mike Loxley's offense. <laughs> I think I just imagine that Josh was like, "All right, y'all, we're just gonna do the same, uh, you know, like same game plan as before. We'll do this, that, or the other. I'm, I'm gonna go down the hall." And he just broke down tape with the defense and just told him everything. But but Mike but Josh didn't game plan for Mike. So how <laughs> how can Josh know what Mike was gonna do? I mean, is this the final? Is this it? Because it was a no. very, 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 very brief uh, Jim Harbaugh, Mike Loxley handshake, like real fast. And so, uh, so the I don't, I don't, I didn't get to see any Gaddis Loxley conversation. But as as Michigan wins thirty eight to seven, any 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 notes from the notepad on that one? I didn't pay super close attention to this game because it was over pretty quick. But there was, I can't remember who one of our listeners tweeted at me that said, you know, as far as the Gaddis Loxley battle is concerned, I'm pretty sure neither were calling the plays. 
Right. <laughs> he wasn't impressed by either offense in this game. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I didn't uh I, I did not see a play of this game and because I just I sort of assumed this that it was gonna end the way it did. I I mean, how are you gonna score on that? How's this Maryland team gonna score on that Don Brown defense? So um so I didn't invest any of my precious game day time into a, a game I felt like I knew the outcome of. The, the sky cam views of the kick return touchdowns were pretty sweet. Well, and, and especially because it happened uh, right at the beginning, so it was able to be the highlight package for every single network. Mm-hmm. Like I felt like I was flipping around and I saw the sky cam kickoff return touchdown on seven different channels. Do you, do you guys remember when Maryland got ranked because it beat a ranked Syracuse? Uh, a, a Syracuse team that gave up 250 rushing yards to A.J. Dillon and, and 58 points to Boston College. Speaking of Syracuse, they go like 44 in the first half, right? Yeah. September feels like a long time ago. Yee. Yeah, the Dino drop is going to have to get retired. <laughs> I'm glad. They got, we- rid of the car- they got rid of the carrier on the carrier dome. Is it the curse of the carrier dome? Yeah, the curse of the of, of the departure of the carrier is killing this team. The second week, by week. Yeah, the second that they actually need some HVAC, they can't get it. <laughs> uh, but what about for Notre Dame Virginia Tech? Do you do you give Ian Book a a thumbs up and a pat on the back, and do you follow Brian Kelly's lead as Brian Kelly's like, oh, it's not Ian Book, it's an eleven man offense, and they all deserve their fair share of the blame because he did have all three of these touchdowns, including uh, putting in the game winner with his feet in the final minute. Virginia Tech showed up with a ton of fight, almost looked like they were going to have what would have been in a really really like. Uh, sort of shocking and defining win. I, I don't know if we need to go into like the the micro of Virginia Tech. I mean, their world is really based on the ACC Coastal, but within the context of Notre Dame and their 21-20 uh, narrow escape at home, I mean, is it was was this just another another wet sandwich of a football game for y'all? I mean, Notre Dame. Du- nearly doubled Virginia Tech up in yards, or at least they had more than 200 more total yards than Virginia Tech. I, I think if you look at the box score, this this game wasn't nearly as close as the score suggests. It's just, you know, Book had the two interceptions, Notre Dame had three turnovers. And it was just, I mean, I don't, I, I wasn't shocked because when you look at Notre Dame and you look at the games that they've played and they're coming off that loss to Michigan, which is a very deflating loss because, you know, Notre Dame was still harboring some playoff hopes and those all died last week in Ann Arbor in a very cold, windy, wet Michigan stadium. So coming the next week against Virginia Tech, I'm not shocked that they kind of came out flat and they looked a little flat because it's like, okay, cool. We could still go 10 and 2. We could still get to a New Year's Six game, but, you know, they wanted to go to the playoff. This is a team that has a lot of players that were in the playoff last year and were thinking, you know, after the way that they got knocked out by Clemson. We're thinking we're going to get back there. We're going to get our revenge. We're going to show them that, you know, we're ready for this. And that ended last week. So for him to be flat this week against Virginia Tech, not a surprise. Although I was kind of, Brian Kelly said after the game that that was the first time all year in a game, in practice, anywhere, that Ian Book led his offense for a score in the two-minute drill. And I was like, dude, what, what are you 
Why is he the starter? Why are you saying this? <laughs> like, are you, is it like a, are you trying to motivate him? Are you just kind of ribbing him or giving him a joke? Or are you critiquing your own decisions at quarterback? What, what are you trying to gain by saying that publicly, man? Um, yeah, that, that was, that was troubling. All right. You guys ready for the, uh, Ivy league story time? Oh, cause oh, we had Dartmouth Mary that nobody saw today. <laughs> no, no, no. No, but I was happy to see that. Dartmouth beats Harvard. Never a bad thing to see Harvard go down. But in defense of Notre Dame here a little bit. So Yale Harvard, my senior year, were the 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 game is uh fourteen to three. Okay. We are driving, we're at the two yard line, about to score to make it fourteen to ten. This is the first half, second quarter. Pick six, goes Harvard scores. We go into halftime instead of down, instead of fourteen to ten, the score is twenty one to three. That totally changes the tone and feel of the game. Notre Dame is about to go down there and make it uh, twenty one to seven. Uh, Ninety nine yard scoop and score, fourteen to fourteen, totally changes the tone of the game, like. That's that that can be hard to recover from. I I I give Notre Dame credit for finding. And by the way, we lost that Harvard game, thirty-five to three. That's the that's the end of that. <laughs> but only twenty-one school points scored by the offense. Pick six and a, and a and a punt return touchdown. So defense off the hook. But point being, I think like Notre Dame did does get credit for some toughness here, for some like mental toughness for. Going down, scoring to take the, to to win the game late, like you know, hey, Virginia came in there five and two. I know it wasn't the best five and two in the world, but that they turned into a decent team, and Notre Dame took a couple punches and and won even while outscoring them. I, I also or out, out gaining them significantly. I also would say on the on the Ian Book thing, like as I look at the the, the top teams, look, Notre Dame is clearly not on the tier of the of the great quarterback teams. Ohio State, LSU, Alabama, Clemson, Oregon, Georgia, Oklahoma. Those are the great quarterback teams. That's their tier. They should be able to be on the Penn State tier. Mm. Uh, Sean Clifford is no better than Ian Book. Uh, and they might be on the Penn State tier. They might not be. I mean, Penn State hasn't played Michigan yet. Yeah, they did. Penn State, but Penn State could have another, couple, another loss in it. Um, they might be like Utah – has a better run game to complement Tyler Hundley with. Ian Book is every bit as good as Kyle Trask, I think. You know, like he's he's as good as what Auburn's got or Wisconsin's got. So he's not like weighing this team down. Ian Book's good enough. So I, I think that the, the the conversation for Notre Dame should turn away from like what is this Ian Book guy all about to like this team should be complete enough to be led by an Ian Book-led quarterback uh, and and win just about every game. Here's here's a fun thought exercise. <clears throat> Who's the best quarterback Brian Kelly's produced at Notre Dame? Deshaun Kaiser. <laughs> that's that's. Uh, I might be right. You might you be might right. Be. Yeah, because I mean, if you look, like they're leading. Dane Christ was his first year there, and then it was Tommy Reese, Andrew Hendricks, Everett Golson, Reese and Hendricks again in 2013. Golson and Zaire, 
Then Kaiser takes over in 2015 and kind of holds on to that job for a couple of years before leaving. And then it's Wimbush, and now it's Ian Book. And I just, I mean, who's who's the last like really good quarterback Brian Kelly's produced? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a great point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was, and and I don't. They might have a kid in 2021 that's got a chance at being a, a, a really good one. It's hard to tell at this point. He doesn't play a really high-level competition. He just hurt as a sophomore. Um, we'll see him throw in person this this offseason a little bit. He could be pretty special. The guy they have coming in in 2020, I don't think is going to be that guy. And Phil Jerkovic, who's the next up, is intriguing. But in terms of his pol- polish as a passer, I am not confident he is going to become the the that guy. So, you know... Notre Dame needs to figure out a way to win with a quarterback that is, for lack of a better phrase, a bus driver. Like, you better figure out, like, you need to get the guys around you to, if you, if the goal is a national championship, you need to have guys that will elevate your quarterback a little bit and not just lean on your quarterback because you haven't had one. There's no reason to expect you, you, you will moving forward. All right. So, where do y'all want to go next? We got Auburn, uh, you know, not a lot of uh, not a lot of happy faces, even in victory, leaving Jordan Harris Stadium. Kansas State takes care of business. NC State total no show performance to start the game against Wake Forest, and the Deeks go on and cruise. And Jamie Newman's return from injury. Uh, a lot of storylines out there. Where do you want to go? Surprised you're just going to just sort of glossing over the the bulletin board material that's been up in the Wake Forest locker room all week <laughs> with Tom Fernelli trying to relegate them. <laughs> <laughs> and they came out just this one's for you for Nelly. Just fucking put it on. Glad know, I can help, boys. <laughs> they uh Wake Forest, I mean, it's just from the very beginning of the game, you could just tell that Wake Forest was uniquely motivated in a way that NC State was not. I uh I tried to speak something into existence. Or I, I, I truly believed. I wasn't trying to speak it into existence. It wasn't blind. I thought that the quarterback change was going to be good for NC State. And they had he had horrible field position from the jump. The defense was giving up a uh, lot of lot of easy touchdown passes. Uh, and Jamie Newman was just running it down their throats. So I you know, credit to Wake Forest because now you know all that talk and and Tom, we were we were talking about fading Wake Forest when everyone gets high on Wake Forest. This seemed to be like it was a uh, the the kind of victory like they were playing NC State, but they were also playing uh, just sort of a, a bigger level of um, overcoming the expectation that they would fall short because NC State hasn't been great this year. Wake Forest has looked very good at times, and this was the team that has at least reached very good at times against a team that still hasn't hit that gear yet. Actually, okay. Chip, I just blame you because you didn't let us know that it was parents weekend. That's true. Oh yeah. That, <laughs> yep. At that a small private school, parents weekend does actually matter. It does. Parents week, parents weekend has full. a lot of juice, a lot of juice to the sidelines on parents weekend. <laughs> that that's so serious question here. All right. Wake, wake right now will be favored in three of the last four games, I would expect. So let's assume that they win the games they're favored in. Lose to Clemson. Finish 10-2, okay? We've joked about Dave Clawson being sort of 
continuing his incremental climb until he is the commissioner of college football. But realistically, after a 10-2 and two season, what is a job that and, – and, and look, and let's, let's open the, the, the door to jo- jobs that are un- very unlikely to come open. But what is a level job that you think should or would or could target Dave Clawson? Well, it's got to be another Power Five gig, clearly. Um, like, is like is Michigan not is is, is does Dave Clawson not cut it for for a Michigan hire? If Jim Harbaugh says, you know what, I'm going to take this, uh, uh, I don't know, Cowboys gig, whatever. I think you could sell it. I don't think he would be their top choice. I think that you know a job that could come open that would probably be wise to consider it is if Chad Morris doesn't survive year two. I would not. Uh, I don't know if I would leave Wake Forest. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I think Wake Forest, for Dave Clawson, at this point in his career, considering that when he came in his first year, he was redshirting everybody and losing a bunch of games and like slowly building up this pipeline of talent to where he's got like – 15 22 year olds on the team that could have left and and had immediate eligibility elsewhere but have decided to stick around for a fifth year i i think for him to just sort of bail on that and try to go start over at arkansas where there's not a lot of natural fit i i would not suggest that i do wonder and i will pitch this back to you barton does vanderbilt look at itself and view itself as having some sort of SEC over ACC leg up on Wake Forest and think that it could go poach Dave Clawson? I doubt it. I doubt it even thinks it could. Wow. And I would be that that would be to me a crazy move for Dave Clawson to make. I, like if I'm Dave Clawson's consigliere, if I'm sitting next to what is how do I pronounce it? Conciliere. Conciliere. If I'm Dave Clawson's conciliere and I'm sitting next to him, and I'm saying, "Let's let's hang tight. Let's let's log another. Let's get get us get us ten wins again next year. Maybe maybe we can creep up and get you know beat Clemson one of these years. Uh, let's let's get two more ten win seasons or so, you know, and and let's 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 try to hold out and and, and see if we can be the right." crew for when that Notre Dame job comes open mm. is that a real is that a realistic aspiration for Dave Clawson I don't think so yeah, maybe I mean again I don't think he would be the first choice of a Michigan or a Notre Dame but I do think that he's somebody that you could sell as the choice I mean I think he needs to do a little more at Wake. Like I don't think if he just wins ten games get this in, year, he needs to get into the. He, like the problem is he's going up against, and we should probably end our Dave Clawson talk soon. But the problem is he's going up against Clemson because otherwise he could realistically win or get, at least get in the ACC championship game at some point. It's just hard mm-hmm. to envision them beating Clemson. Yeah, I think he needs like a couple nine, ten win seasons before he could really pertain that. So he's so, he's been a head coach in total uh, since 1999. He had one season where he was an offensive coordinator at Tennessee, but other than that, he has been a head coach. Fordham, Richmond, Bowling Green, Wake Forest. He's 52 years old. 
And when Wake Forest just made the transition at athletic director from Ron Wellman to John Curry, I think Ron Wellman on his way out signed him to like a new seven or eight year extension. It is the, the ro- everything is roses sort of roadmap has laid out, including the the new investment in the Sutton Performance Center and the indoor facility and everything else that they've just sort of been uh, rallying around a lot on these Wake Forest bowl games in terms of their fundraising efforts. There's there's a there's a path that is Dave Clawson just keeps grinding out eight to ten win seasons at Wake Forest for the next five to six years, and that's it. And he's he says I've been coaching for a long time at a lot of different I levels. I, I don't think that's what he wants. Ooh. I don't think that's what he wants. I think he I think he's he's gonna keep on. He wants to keep climbing, but in in an effort to uh, get us to another topic here, there was another major incomplete information moment in gambling history this weekend. No one told me that Drew Brees was going to be on the sidelines <laughs> for Nebraska-Purdue. Not get that memo. Didn't get the press release. What are we – like, it's like Nebraska can't beat that Purdue team? Yeah. Nope. Apparently not. I mean, yo, like, what the hell, guys? Where are we? in this Nebraska tenure. I mean, I don't know, man. It's, it is strange. Cause like Adrian Martinez has regressed considerably. I mean, when you think about going into the season there, you know, you just based on how he played as a freshman and he wasn't perfect, but you thought that with the flashes he showed as a freshman, Second year in a Scott Frost offense, and just based on what we've seen, what's what Scott Frost has been able to do with his quarterbacks before, it's like, okay, we, we could see something special, but he's just gone backwards for the most part. He's missing throws badly. He kind of he, he was running well today, but like there were some throws I saw him make that were just like horrible today. And he's going up against what Jack Plummer was like their third or fourth string, and Plummer got hurt. And oh, by the way, I saw Plummer is out for the year too. Are you serious? <laughs> so like now Purdue is going to be down to like it's fifth quarterback next week. And, but yeah, it's back to Nebraska, man. I, I don't know. I really don't. It's, I still think Scott Frost is a good coach, but man, there's a lot more work that needs to be done with that team than I thought. Is it possible that, you just are going to have some of these situations where it is it is a fragile um, the the shifts that Scott Frost is trying to push in both schematically and culturally is you know like he is such a bull in a china shop from what I can tell such a like my way forward such a just just push and char like he came from uh, he came from Chip Kelly's staff that you are dealing with the the kind of fragility that's going to have some, so things are going to be a little bit volatile. I mean, we saw like UCLA started the year one and five, then they just had their third straight double digit win. Like, is that what we should connect Scott Frost to instead of looking at him as Nebraska's golden boy and bringing back the era of Tom Osborne? Instead, he's part of the chip Kelly tree 
and we should expect the same kind of risk reward that you get with Chip Kelly? Because that's kind of where I think I'm leaning right now. Maybe. Well, I also think Nebraska needs to get stronger. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I think it's I think it's just interesting to watch the um, media darling, and I don't say that uh, disparagingly because I was part of the media that had him as a darling, and I and I still I am not I am not turning my back on Scott Frost, but like the there's like now some just like a little like petulance towards the media, like some. You know, he's getting frustrated with the losses. He doesn't have the answers. Now, you know, someone asked how did uh, Adrian Martinez look in practice this week, and he said he looked like he was 6'2", 225 pounds with dark hair. And next question, kind of. Mm. It was like, Whoa, okay. <laughs> 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 I guess, you know, and, and he got some heat for, like, saying that, uh, you know, his his players were wearing hoodies in the cold or something and said that, you know, when he was, when he was in Nebraska, you know, that would, you get beat up for something like that. And, uh, you know, I, Hey, that sort of stuff gets the, gets the base excited when you're winning games, when but you're, when you're losing to Purdue with their third string quarterback, that that's, that makes it harder for folks to swallow that stuff. So it's just going to be very interesting to see how long it, you know, how much longer it takes Nebraska and uh, whether the Nebraska fan base starts to, to turn on their, 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 their native son. So three year two coaches who would have thought that we'd be sitting here having that discussion about Scott Frost, having Chip Kelly coming off his third straight double digit win. And then uh, I guess Willie Taggart is, is sort of bringing up the rear here. Because Ooh. Florida State's now four and five. And last year was the snapping of a streak that dated all the way back to Bobby Bowden's first year of Florida State playing in the postseason. And, you know, that's not a great first impression to make on the Florida State fan base and the Florida State program to have this, you know, decades long postseason streak come to an end in the first year under your watch. But if Florida State doesn't, if Florida State again, fails to make it to the postseason, that is the kind of hard evidence that might uh might that, that that might bring a might bring about a change. Do you think that Willie Taggart will be coaching Florida State for the first game of twenty twenty next year? I think I'll know the answer to that on uh about two o'clock central time on November ninth after they played Boston College in Chestnut Hill in the Red Bandana game. Oh, no. That could be I mean, it. it's not a night game, and I feel like it's that, that makes it a little less scary. But if they lose that game, I don't think he would be back. If they win that game, then they get to a bowl, they beat Alabama State, you know, he survives. I think he loses Boston College. I don't think he's back. I mean, that game went how I expected it to. And I don't think that's a good sign for Willie. Did you expect Florida State to commit 10 penalties for a total of 203 penalty yards? Probably. <laughs> I don't know if I would say I expected them to commit that many, but, but it's just 
they they had 200 yards of offense. They averaged 2.9 yards per play. And it was like I was saying, you know, when I when I took Miami, just you know, as my money line sprinkle, it's Florida State needed to resort to gimmicks on offense last week to beat a bad Syracuse team at home. If you've got to resort to that at that in that spot in that game, what were you going to do against Miami's defense? Did y'all see Manny Diaz's quote after the game the, about a stationary target? Stationary target, yeah. And Alex Hornibrook is the living, breathing definition of a stationary target. Did you see that, yeah. Barton? Yeah, I did. Made made That's life pretty- really easy. Yeah. Um, they should have gone should have gone Wildcat. Missed out on an opportunity there. Uh, all right, so what else is uh, standing out from the day? Uh, Indiana kicked Northwestern's butt. Indiana's got seven wins. Hello. <laughs> they, they might finish nine and two now. Uh, Illinois won again. They're a win away from a bowl game. If Indiana is ranked tomorrow, it will be the first time that the Hoosiers have been ranked since 1994 or 96. I don't think they will be because if you look at who they've played, I'm sure that'll be used against them. But I hope they are because, damn it, just just give them the 25. Give it to them for the love of God. It's either them or Navy. And if Boise State loses, then maybe they're both in. I I give it to Indiana because Navy will get it again soon enough. There you go. Barton? Uh, I think Tennessee is going to make a bowl. I should have – I mean, I I said it um, during the week. But, you know, so it's not as if it's just this UAB win is somehow impressing me. But I just think Tennessee's starting to get it rolling at the right time. They got to win three out of four against Kentucky, Missouri, Vanderbilt. Sorry, two out of three against Kentucky, Missouri, Vanderbilt to get to a bowl. I think they do that. They might just sweep all three. Um, And Oregon State got another win. Woo! Woo! Beavers are unstoppable now. Bryce Perkins put it on North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I didn't get to see any good. of that. That's one of those classic ACC network games. He had three hundred and yeah, three hundred and seventy-eight passing yards, one hundred and twelve rushing yards, five total touchdowns. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one man show. Could not be stopped. So he was account. He counted for all five of their touchdowns. Then yes. Um, How about ECU nearly knocking off Cincinnati? I was I was one week late on my ECU pick. That's that's college football for you. You know, their homecoming game against USF, and they get blown out. And then they got Cincinnati. Supposed to be a top 25 team. They should have beat them. How about that? And oh. that game went not the way that any, like it, it shouldn't have gone that way, right? Like it should have been that Cincinnati's offense comes in and, and maybe sort of farts around on the road in Greenville, but it. Holt Nollers threw for 535. Holt Nollers had like, like Cincinnati's defense is supposed to be the strength of that team. And he had like uh, 30 points on the scoreboard in the first 20 minutes. Stupid. 
Uh, His name is what? Holton Ollers. Holton Ollers? Yeah. Sounds like, okay, I thought you said Holton Hollers. I was like, that sounds like a place in Kentucky where they cook meth. That's where Lynn Bowden's from. (laughs) Lynn Bowden from Holton Holton Ollers, Kentucky. That's right. (laughs) Um, Uh, Trying to see what else. Kansas State. I'm I'm really, I'm going to enjoy this this era of Kansas State football. I'm really looking forward to the oncoming era of Kansas State football. Just so you know, I'm going to be a fan of this. Uh, Fuck boy brutality. Uh, Oklahoma State, 34-27 over TCU. TCU yeah. caught in a little bit of a letdown spot. Chuba Hubbard right now responsible for two of the top 10 single season rushing totals in Oklahoma State football history. And yes, one of those is still active. He's currently his current season, I think, is at number eight. So uh, he's coming for him. Uh huh. For Barry, he's coming for Barry. Coming for Barry. Ooh, Barry, you're in trouble. Oklahoma State is six and three, and the Cowboys have uh, Kansas, West Virginia, and Oklahoma left. So. Eight and four it is. Well, I mean, they would be a more of a threat for the Big 12 championship game if all three losses weren't in uh, Big 12 play to Baylor, Texas Tech, and Texas. Yeah, that's a good point. They would be in line for a Big 12 title if they hadn't lost games. <laughs> yes, thank you, Tom. <laughs> Jackass. <laughs> uh, shout out to Army and Air Force for restoring sanity to the world as far as Service Academy Unders are concerned. Agree. That felt good. Uh, uh, Barrett Salee tweeted, Arkansas, where's the tweet? I just want to see what you guys think. Oh, about, about how it's as bad as like the worst Ar- Vanderbilt Arkansas teams. is the worst SEC team of his lifetime, and uh, and his lifetime includes some pretty bad Vandy teams or something like that. Is that – and then I, I, I t- tweeted at him, and he was he sort of joked back and said, just let me, let me hit – be in this moment or something is, <laughs> but are we are we are we actually getting there with with this team like is arkansas really that bad does chad morris really need to potentially get fired this year what was the one stat because now it is let me find it. okay arkansas now has two 17 game sec losing streaks one of them now active since midway through the 2012 season that's two in the last seven seasons. And that covers over two seasons each. <laughs> so they've had more winless seasons in a way than they've had seasons with a win if you break them down into eight-game segments. Is that job good? It was for Bobby Petrino. I think, I it, just, I think it can be. I, look, well, it's probably... Uh, like, is, is it, is it a, is it a better job than Indiana? I think it probably is. I wonder if we, after experiencing a little bit of fluidity in the SEC West, where an Ole Miss kind of crept up there, made some noise, Mississippi State crept up there, made it to an orange bowl. Uh, I guess you could take it all the way back to Bobby Petrino's sugar bowl. Shout out to the sugar bowl hat that he wore in the press conference. Like, you know, I I wonder if we've now kind of settled into a little bit more of a separation between the top half of that division 
in the bottom half of that division. And maybe even you could say the same thing on the East too, where I, at least as things sit right now, I don't see a whole lot of movement or parity and across the entire SEC, just from a division by division perspective, it's actually a little bit like more throwback traditional where I see Tennessee being the team on the way up in the East. I think as far as the Arkansas job is concerned, that part of the problem is timing in that, like you said, Mississippi State has trended up in recent years. Alabama, LSU, Auburn, now Texas A&M, got to contend with. But I also think that there's kind of a yo-yo factor in going from what Petrino likes to do offensively and then having that end really against their choice because of, you know, Bobby going on a motorcycle ride with his lady. And then bringing in the complete opposite as far as personality and style of play in Burt and that not working and then getting rid of Burt and then going back to that same kind of spread that Petrino would run now that you've got Chad Morris, although not the same, but you know, the same kind of offensive philosophical change. So in the span of this decade, they've gone from spread to, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust and now back to a spread. It's hard to find consistency because you need different kind of players to play those kinds of offenses. So, Bielema inherits a team full of players that don't fit his style. And then he finally brings in those players. And then he gets fired. And Morris inherits a bunch of players who don't fit his style. And now he's got to bring in his kind of guys. And I just, I don't think he's going to get long enough to do it the way things are going. But I, I think that's played a role in it as well. Like, I think Arkansas could be a better team than it is now. But I don't know if it's like a, you know, if it's really a legit contender in the SEC. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know, I don't know. Chad's, I I think he's I think he'll be around for this year. I think he'll be fired after next year, and uh, Arkansas will hire Gus Malzahn in twenty twenty one. I mean, who do they got left? They got Western Kentucky oh. next week. Arkansas they, will get Gus Malzahn a raise in twenty twenty one. If they lose to Wake WKU next week, he's not finishing the season. Yeah, maybe not. Will Western Kentucky beat Arkansas next year, next week? No, but maybe. But but possibly. <laughs> like you can't dismiss it outright. Western Kentucky is just good enough, and there might be enough quit in Arkansas for it to happen. Yeah, and like that—that's the thing. If Western Kentucky beats Arkansas, are any of us going to be shocked? Uh, no. No. no, which is which is which is shocking that I won't be shocked. If you were to tell me that before the season, will you be shocked if Western Kentucky beats Arkansas? I would have said yes. I would be shocked. <laughs> now I'm not. I wouldn't be shocked because Western and, Kentucky's was terrible last year. Yeah, but I've seen some <laughs> now. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen Boston College put up 58 points in the dome. My world is rocked. <laughs> but we're the special teams well coached. They didn't huddle, though. There were no huddles. <laughs> I appreciate all of our listeners who responded to our my my responses in the first minute of, but are the special teams well coached? <laughs> <laughs> they know what's up. 
Uh, all right. We will be back on Monday with another Mailbag Monday. So if uh, you're listening to this right now, go ahead and uh, and hop on that Cover 3 College Football Podcast page. Leave a five-star review. Uh, leave us a, a comment and a question within that comment, and we will address it on a Mailbag Monday. You can follow him on Twitter at Barton Simmons. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Pernelli. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. Bright shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo. Thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future, moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply.